Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for November 20th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. On the last episode of this show, we talked about the Chorus and Orchid initiatives, two undertakings in which the scholarly publishing industry is deeply involved. Both of those efforts, and others important to publishers in a technically driven information environment, rest by necessity on an expanding body of shared technical standards and practices. DOIs, standardization of markup and metadata, controlled vocabularies, and the like. Of course, editorial and business standards have always been the stock in trade for scholarly publishing. But in an ever more networked and interconnected world, compliance and engagement with technical standards around information and data has emerged as a key value proposition for publishers, perhaps even as a minimum stake in the game. To talk about this dimension, I'm joined today by Todd Carpenter, the executive director of NISO, the National Information Standards Organization, and also a chef in the scholarly kitchen. Todd, welcome. Yes, good morning. Uh, before we talk about standards, uh, I believe you were at uh, the Charleston conference a few weeks ago. Uh, I was wondering if you could share some general thoughts on your takeaways from that conference in terms of where the scholarly communication environment stands right now and you know, some of what we should be looking for in the coming year. Yes, actually, I was in Charleston. It's, it's probably one of my favorite meetings throughout the year. It has grown so much over the, the years. It's been almost 20 years since I started going. And back when I started, it was around 400 people. And the people who had originally gotten it going said they longed for the days when it was just about, you know, a couple dozen. <laughs> and this year it was, you know, numbering around 12 or 1300. Mm. And I felt myself pining for the days when it was only, you know, three or 400 people. <laughs> But what makes it such a great conference is it brings together such a diverse community of both libraries, publishers, and, and suppliers, and provides an opportunity for everyone in the community to kind of talk about what their issues are and what they're facing, seemingly quite collegial environment most of the time, the opening keynote notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> what, was, what was the opening keynote this time? She, she's the uh, director of SUNY Potsdam. And she stood up and she's made several comments over the you know, publicly commenting and criticizing publisher licensing and pricing models, etc. And so she was basically calling people out for that, as well as proclaiming that, you know, people who use their rights to voice publicly uh, their opinions about the industry should also praise people in the industry. She very kindly called out EBSCO for, for their, you know, their fantastic service. But it was kind of a clarion call for the community. The librarians are customers, and they should stand up for their rights, you know, and not simply accept what uh, publishers or suppliers hand to them in terms of contracts, which was an interesting call. But anyway, from the perspective of trends, I mean, there's so much transition going on in our space, and there's so many trends taking place in our space that are were covered in, in quite heavy detail. There's uh, index discovery services. There's some really fascinating research that was uh, discussed in in a couple sessions about the use and impact of these discovery services and how it's increasing usage in a statistically significant fashion. There was a lot of conversation about MOOCs and, and how do libraries provide access to the patrons of MOOC courses 
sources and and how does alternative metrics play into this and how does the use of assessment kind of bolster the presence of the library and and you know obviously this plays back to the publishers in terms of what they provide as well mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of fascinating conversations and just because and there's a lot fascinating going on in the industry there's a lot right fascinating now. going on absolutely well let's talk a bit about standards now i uh, i talked sort of generally at the top of the show about the importance of standards in today's scholarly publishing world but obviously you know you have a much more informed perspective than i do how would you characterize that well this might sound self-serving but i think at the moment standards are the thing that really needs the attention of the community it's the linchpin of how we are creating and distributing information and our world are the publishing industry and, and many other industries and i want to just single out our own but this particular space has been near the forefront of information technology distribution and is more impacted by standards and standards distribution than any other. Because in a world where you had a book, you could customize your book and you could print it in whatever font you wanted. Mm-hmm. You could carve your own font if you wanted to. You didn't have to do any, uh, any particular design and you could sell it to somebody and not worry about it. It wouldn't have to interact in any way with anything else. But today, in order for an author to create content, send that content into a production flow, and then have that content distributed and rendered in a way that it's going to look somewhat similar to how the author or publisher wants it to look, uh, all of these things are really driven by standards. And if you think back to to Gutenberg and the, the foundations of our industry, publishing was one of the first industrial uh, manufacturing um, at the forefront of that. And standards are a critical component of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. We, we don't think about these things anymore, but there are a tremendous number of standards when you pick up a book. We don't call them standards, and they never had ISO designations. But page numbers, for example, mm-hmm. that's a standard, and it developed out of a manufacturing need. Because you'd have people laying in type, uh, type and Johan over there was faster than George over here. <laughs> so Johan's page was done first, and that was laid out, and you printed 700 copies of page 214 before you got around to printing page 78. And you had stacks of paper. You had to put those together in some way to bind them. Well, the way to solve that is you number them. <laughs> and you had marks at the bottom of the page to say, well, this word is the next word on this next page. So there's a lot of standards that our industry is familiar with, that we need to take those traditional standards that we've relied on for centuries, page numbers, for example, and transform those into a digital space as well. What does a page number mean when you can size up the text to 128-point font? Uh, You have two words on the page. But page numbers are very useful things when, say, annotating something or describing if you're standing in the front of the class and say, hey, would everyone pay, turn to page, uh, to, to page 78 where there is this Shakespearean soliloquy? <laughs> if everybody has a digital text, well, how do I find that? 
Well, you do head up an organization, uh, NISO, that's chartered, in fact, to take the lead in standards for digital information in particular. This is a member-funded uh, nonprofit, not anything with any sort of government charter. Um, I'm curious about when something crosses the line from this sort of general industry best practice to something that uh, NISO actually kind of cares about and takes an interest in. Well, actually, there's, um, there's a point of clarification here, and this is an important element. NISO develops formal ANSI-approved standards, and we have done for, for decades. We also, we increasingly are spending a lot of time developing recommended practices, best practices for how, uh, for example, we have uh, the sushi standard for how systems should talk to each other in exchanging um, usage data. That's great. That's a great standard. It's a wide adoption. But we also just recently launched a project on how to set up your server, how to test it. Uh, so it's not just the formal, technical, um, official, capital S standards, but we also spend a great deal of our time, probably more than half of our time, developing these recommended practices. And we see this as kind of a continual a, a flow of formality. You start out with one person's idea or, or a white paper or maybe a survey um, that says, oh, well, we've surveyed publishers and publishers seem to do things this way and this seems to be the most efficient. Well, that could be a white paper. You could then move that up the chain of formality to something, okay, well, we've, we've convened a working group and this group agrees that this might be the best way to do this. And then you could eventually get to a point where you say, no, this is the way that this should be done. In standards language, we get very caught up into may and shall and should mm -hmm. and, and, uh, must. <laughs> and must. Yes, exactly. And so as you move up the chain of formality, those it would be nice if you did become you should do this to you must do this. And it's very important to consider this in the process, in the context of how our technology space is evolving, because we don't want to be in a position to say, uh, say with um, alternative metrics and, and assessment criteria. That's very nascent. Mm -hmm. we, don't know, we don't necessarily know what is the best correlation between early citation or network-based usage that will eventually point out to you that, you know, 20 years from now, this will be the Nobel Prize winner. Mm. We don't know that. I don't think we ever will. But, you know, how, what, how do these things correlate to eventual citation is one pretty important element of what we're trying, what we're exploring in this new world of assessment mm -hmm. is we've got citation and that's been a, a fairly useful metric. But how do these new metrics fit into that landscape. And we don't want to be in a position to say that this metric is the thing, and so you must do things in this way, because we don't know yet. But we do know enough to say, when developing network usage analysis, our experience has shown that there's a lot of um, machine use and, and bots and, and crawlers, and those should be pulled out from usage that you're reporting. And how does that, you know, how do you do that in, say, uh, Twitter analytics? You know, someone might have retweeted this, but was that someone actually a person or just a bot? 
And so in some sense, this continuum is about doing the best you can, you know, in terms of making recommendations at a given point in the, in the maturing of a technology. Uh, and, and you might, you know, you might be able to bring some order out of the chaos through a recommendation without necessarily going to, going to something, you know, as binding as a standard. Yes, absolutely. And, and then you get into things that have been established for a very long time. I mean, some of the things that NISO's done over the years, ink on paper, you know, the permanence of paper, those are things that we've done, we've established, uh, but there hasn't been a lot of rapid development in the change of paper production um, or binding. Mm-hmm. So standards that were developed, you know, back in the 60s and 70s uh, are perfectly fine, and we continue to maintain them. Well, you mentioned, you know, those earlier standards. Looking back at some earlier NISO standards, I, I see things like uh, standards for single-tier steel bracket library shelving and information on microfiche headers. Uh, clearly, we've come a long way from that. Um, what would you say are the most important things on NISO's current docket or even other things with kind of a standards flavor that NISO isn't looking at yet uh, for the scholarly publishing community in particular to be aware of uh, for the next few years? Sure. I mentioned assessment. I think finding and improving the ways that we capture the scholarly output and provide some assessment metrics that uh, provide some clarification about value in a more networked environment mm-hmm. are going to be are going to be critical. Every institution is looking at how they're investing their their resources and how are they being what kind of impact are those resources having uh, i don't see that declining in any way in the in in the near future. And NISO has launched with the generous funding of the Sloan Foundation an initiative to brainstorm and then help develop some recommended practices or potentially standards related to alternative metrics. That's going to be a a two- or three-year project, probably be 2016 by the time we're wrapped up. But that's what I think is is a critical component. There's also a lot of work in research data and data sharing and data integration that NICE has done some work in supplemental materials, but I think the community of researchers is really moving in that direction in terms of not just sharing uh, the written-up results of their work, Mm -hmm. but also the data that underpins it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of very complex issues around that, preservation and, uh, and citation, version controlling and provenance, how those systems work together, and how do you integrate data. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a big thicket for for a number of years. Is that something that NISO is looking at right now in a in a formal project, or uh, or is it just something that is kind of an emergent issue? We've been engaged in a couple initiative, up couple community initiatives. There was an ICSD CoData working group on data citation, mm-hmm. and that is also kind of developing into something that Force 11 is working on, and we've been engaging in that. There's some metadata issues around that that we've been discussing. So less formal work at this stage that NISO is particularly working on, but is absolutely something that we're likely to be touching on in the next couple of years. So what else do you see out there on the horizon? A big issue that I don't think many in the scholarly community are spending a lot of time thinking about is actually accessibility. 
There was a treaty, a WIPO treaty signed in Marrakesh earlier this year. And I heard, I was at a conference and speaking to someone from Italy, that the Italian government is now mandating accessibility on all educational content. Mm-hmm. I don't have all of the details on that. I need to, I'm probably be writing something up in the scholarly kitchen about it. But this, uh, how we distribute content digitally to the print disabled community mm-hmm. is going to be something that the scholarly community will will have to start dealing with in a in a more robust way than we have done previously mm. and again this gets to you know what are the technical implications of the content that we're creating mm-hmm. accessibility is one um, and you know interoperability is another well, as I kind of suggested uh, at the outset, just to close here, um, as information and what you can do with it becomes more complicated, uh, compliance and sort of keeping up to date with these standards has become an important part of, of the value that publishers might bring not only to authors, but to users, librarians and other clients. But it's also, I, I guess, a bit of a challenge to uh, to sort of maintain these and keep up with these standards. How should publishers best engage with this and, and sort of meet this responsibility? Are there approaches you've seen that seem particularly successful? Staying abreast of technological change is not easy, uh, especially as it moves as quickly as it does in in our present environment. There are a number of groups that are focused on technological engagement. Uh, NISO is one, but there are various industry-specific groups. I'm thinking of the Electronic Information Committee at at the PSP is one example. There's the the Crossref Technical uh, Group is another, where a lot of... uh, a lot of thinking is taking place. STM has a as an innovations uh, group as well. The challenges that I see for our community is that oftentimes there might be one person or one executive who participates in those groups, but the technology that's discussed needs to be disseminated throughout the organization. So it kind of becomes a single point of failure. Hmm. Particularly if that person moves on for for whatever reason, right. and, and so how does an organization build in more deeper technical expertise in engaging the community in these issues? There are several organizations I could point to who do this very well, where there are you know several people who engage in technical issues. You mm-hmm. you, never, you don't often see the same person showing up at every industry meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think more organizations need to foster that engagement in their, in their staffs in, in order to make the organization stronger, both aware technically, but also uh, you know, more robust. Well, Todd Carpenter, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for November 20th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. 
You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.